hear the word of God from a selection of passages about the coming of Jesus the Messiah. You can follow along on the screen. Genesis 3, 13 to 15. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He'll give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Matthew 1, 1 and 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. There were 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Luke 2, 1 through 5. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everybody went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David, 
He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. John seven, forty to 43 On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He's the Messiah. Still others said, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Micah 5, 2 through 4. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, church. I hope you had a really good Thanksgiving. Good food, good uh, stuffing, mashed potatoes. Favorite Thanksgiving food, really quickly, what is it? Pumpkin pie, ooh, I like pumpkin pie. Stuffing? Sweet potato casserole, I like it all, it's all good. Now, mind you, I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. Not a big turkey guy. Is that true, is that just me, is that everybody else? Not a big turkey guy. I'll eat it, it's just food, but just saying, just confessing my heart to you. I love this season. And as you can tell by the decorations and the lighting of the candle, we've started our Advent season here at church. What is Advent? What does Advent mean? Anybody? Coming. That's right. It doesn't mean, it's not just another word for Christmas. The word Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. It's the season that we celebrate the arrival of Jesus and the anticipation of the future coming of Jesus to consummate his kingdom. Pastor Danny sums it up like this, and this is a great thing to memorize this, study this, share it with your family. This is a great, simple way that Pastor Danny sums up Advent. It's going to be on the screen. It says, God promised he would come to bring salvation to his people. At just the right time he came, and he's coming again to make all things right and new. I thought it was going to be on the screen. Maybe it won't be. I'll say that again then. God promised he would come to bring salvation to his people. At just the right time he came. And he is coming again to make all things right and new. A great simple definition of what Advent is. Something that you can share with your family, share and talk about. What does that mean? He's God promised he would come to bring salvation at just the right time he came. And he's coming again to make all things right and new. That is Advent. He promised he would come at the right time he came. He is coming again. Come Lord Jesus, come. This morning, we're going to focus in on a specific place. And in looking at that place, I want to see an incredible theme of hope. That place is called Bethlehem. 
and it's honestly not much to it. Around the time of Christ's birth, it was a small town located on the edge of the desert of Judah, around 5 to 11 miles south of Jerusalem. It was recorded in Genesis that Rachel was buried there. Its biggest claim to fame, though, is that David was from there and was anointed, by king, anointed as king by Samuel. So go, if you went to high school in Bethlehem, you probably see all of David's stuff everywhere. You know, his jersey would be hanging up over there. His poems that he wrote would be over all the literature department and the field would be named after. This would be King David Field. So if you went to high school in Bethlehem, that's what you would have been seeing. But the town became less and less relevant after the time of David. But then out of nowhere, Micah makes this huge proclamation in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, I love that, whose coming forth is from old, or that version says, who, who comes, whose origins are in the distant past. Micah here is referring to the promised Messiah that all of Israel has been waiting for, pleading for, eagerly anticipating. This Messiah was their hope. It was their source of hope. It was what hope was, what was hoped for. See, we use the word hope in typically at least three different ways here, typically, in this modern time. One, hope is the desire for something good in the future. I might say, I hope my kids will wear themselves out so they will go to bed early and quick. This is a common hope for me. And in other words, the desire is for my kids to be so tired that me and my wife can experience a good night, a stress-free night, a night where they go to bed right away. That's one way to use hope. Another way to use hope is hope is the good thing in the future that we are desiring. We say, our hope is that Billy will arrive safely. In other words, Billy's safe arrival is the object of our hope. Hope is also the reason why our hope might indeed come to pass. We say stuff like, having no traffic is our only hope of arriving on time. So in other words, no traffic is the reason we may in fact achieve the future good that we want, that is our hope. So hope is used in three senses, a desire for something good in the future, the thing in the future that we desire, and the basis or reason for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. You guys with me so far? All three of these ways are found in the Bible with regards to hope. But the most important feature of biblical hope is not present in any of these ordinary uses. The most distinctive meaning of hope in Scripture is actually somewhat of the opposite of the way we use hope. I don't mean that hope, scripture, hope in Scripture is opposite in the sense of we don't want a good thing, we, desire, we still desire a good thing, and I don't mean it to mean that it's the opposite of that. But when I say opposite, it's in reality opposite in this way. Ordinarily, when we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty. When we use the word hope, we hope for something. We hope my kids will wear themselves out. We hope we have no traffic. We hope that a Billy will arrive safely. I hope my kids get tired. Ordinarily, when we express hope, we are expressing uncertainty. But that is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It's a confident expectation. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And not only does it expect it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. This is the hope of the Israelites who believed and the hope we now have today. 
This hope manifested itself in Bethlehem according to the promises of the prophets. Actually, even earlier, according to the promises made to the kings, King Solomon and King David. Actually, we'll go back even further, it manifests itself in the promises given to Judah. Oh, wait, let's go back, even to the promises to Moses. Actually, even earlier, promises given to Abraham. Let's go back even further. All the way to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve came a promise after a fall. Now, let's go back together with me. If you go back to the very beginning, if you go back to the beginning of the world as we know it, we go back to the garden. There's this beautiful garden It's called the Garden of Eden. Everything is great and wonderful. It's paradise. It is creation and it is meant to be. Everything is wonderful, except there's this one tree. And we're told not to eat from this tree. We're told Adam and Eve are told not to eat from this tree because it is dangerous and it will kill them. So enjoy everything else. Just avoid the tree and you'll be fine. But then out of nowhere, there's a snake. And it tells a different story. It says, if you eat from the tree, it'll make you like God. And Adam and Eve believed the snake for some crazy reason. And because of this, the garden, the goodness of the garden is lost. Evil enters the world. What was perfect is now marred. Now, most sane and typical people will have some questions. Why is there a snake in the garden? If it's perfect, if it's paradise. My wife, that'd be her first question. Snakes shouldn't exist in paradise. Snakes are bad. Why is the snake talking? Why is it leading Adam and Eve astray? Why or how has this gotten, what's going on in there? Now the why or how isn't in the Bible, but the Bible presents the snake as a creature that's in rebellion against God. And whatever the snake is, is a source of evil that pervades our world even still today. And all of a sudden, there's now this enmity, there's this enemy, there's this, a snake who's in rebellion and a God who created goodness and perfection. And out of that comes the basis of almost every story, every archetype we have in all throughout history and psychology. There comes this idea that now there's good and there's evil, there's rebellion against what was made right. And the source of all that is wrong, that warped what was all made right, came from this idea of the serpent. All seems lost. Paradise is gone. Evil is in the world. A curse has come. But there is hope. An interesting promise. Someone is coming, a son of Eve, it says. He will crush the serpent and destroy evil at its source. Yet at the same time, it will bite the man and lead to a mutual destruction. It's a very strange and beautiful promise, almost poetic promise, that there will come a son out of the women who, who sinned. Out of you will come a savior, come a hero, and he will crush the serpent, will crush the source of evil, will crush what is wrong in this world, but at the same time, he's going to get bit. Weird picture. And the promise is there in the Bible. It's not hanging there until the next key moment, until Abraham comes along. And the Bible now says, through Abraham and his family, goodness and blessing will be restored back to the world. So there's this hope that this son of Eve will come. Now to Abraham, this hope is continued and saying, through you, Abraham, and through your family, goodness and blessing for not just you, but for all nations will come. And then we follow the story, we get to Abraham's grandson, Judah, and he receives a promise that the king will come from his line, and this king will bring peace and harmony. Wine will be flowing, the land will have milk and honey. So then King David comes along from the line of Judah. Oh, he's a hero. Slayed the Goliath. You guys know what I'm talking about, King David? He's a hero, he's a warrior, he's a poet, he's a king. 
And everybody's thinking, is he the promised king? But it turns out, no. He's infected with the same evil. He's infected by the same evil that a serpent brought into the world. He doesn't crush, instead he fails. But however, there's a promise still made even to him. A promise of hope that even from his line, even from the failure line, even from this failure of a king who seems great but who still failed, will come this hero. The line though of David is shown to be lacking. Generation after generation falling into evil over and over again. King after king giving into the serpent, following other gods, turning away from their source of hope. Running Israel into the ground, Babylon takes them over, major empire comes, now there's no kings left to fulfill the promise. But during these dark days, there's a group of guys called the prophets, and they just kept on talking about this coming king, this coming hope, reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, and he'll restore the garden. Now one specific prophet, Isaiah, comes along, and he tells us more about why this king, this person, this hero is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden, he, this hero comes back and Isaiah says that because he received this wound, that he can now become a source of healing to other people. Isaiah says that this hero has to receive the wound, but because of the wound he received, he can now heal others. So the Old Testament ends, and a snake-crushing king that everybody's been talking about, everybody's been hoping for, never shows up. But they had a biblical hope. They had a confidence that this was happening. And that is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. Not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill the specific ancient promises. We learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here and now. He confronts the issues that sin has brought to the world. He confronts the issues of, of creation that was turned wrong. He heals what is broken. He forgives sin. People are believing that he, this is the promised king. But, but then Jesus tells his followers that he's going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. He's going to take the fatal snake bite wound. And so on the cross, it seems like the serpent wins. And the story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death. And so the rest of the New Testament is making this claim. That Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin, begin confronting the effects of evil in our own world, in our own lives. But even still, as we know and experience every day, death and evil are a real problem in our world, all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all, and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. That is the redemptive biblical history of the Bible, and that is your history, that is our history, and that is our hope. Do you hear that? That is the redemptive story from the very beginning. God created enmity. He created separation. He created an enemy, an adversary to the serpent. And ultimately, guys, and this is what every story, every movie, every storyline ever came was based on this idea that there is evil and there is rebellion against God and he came in the form of the serpent. But one day, he crushes the head. That a hero has come 
And hear this, guys, and I love this. For those of us who are like, yeah, he crushes the head. Oh, stop, manly power, awesome. No, he crushes the head by dying upon a cross. By giving himself and by willingly dying by sacrifice. And there will come a day, ultimately, when he fully, fully brings back the restored garden on earth. Till that day comes, we live in the hope of his coming again. And we are the ones to show the world around us that we are the ones fighting against the forces of evil on this earth and showing that the return of the kingdom is coming. How beautiful of a story is that? How incredible of a narrative of that? How awesome of a hope is that? That is biblical hope. Jesus came like he said he would. He died and purchased new life and will come again like he promised to make all things right. Emily Dickinson wrote a poem about hope. And the only reason I know this poem is because I dated a girl named Hope in high school. And one day I thought it'd be really cool and romantic if I said, hey, I, I, I found you a poem about your name. It's the only reason I know this poem. But it's always stuck with me ever since. And it says this, hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings a tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. And I love this image. If you go back to that very first stanza, hope is a thing with feathers that perches on the, in the soul and sings a tune without the words and never stops at all. This Advent season and for the rest of your life is hope perched in your soul. This is a biblical hope of a confidence of a future that is coming. That you're part of a bigger story. That you're part of a bigger meta-narrative. I love how Belinda talks about what's the purpose of life? I just I didn't understand. I couldn't figure it out. Is it just to live and just to die, to leave a legacy? And she said she felt empty until she discovered that there was something else for her that the biblical hope for her was that she was part of a greater story, that hope that she was part of a meta-narrative, this huge work of the conquering of the serpent, and that she has a role to play in that. Do you see that your hope is founded not just because you're good, or not because you've done good things, or you go, you go to church on Sunday mornings, or you're, you're wealthy, or you're successful, or you're a kind person. Our hope, those are flaky, flimsy things to build hope on. But our hope is built on the biblical truth that we're part of a bigger story, a meta-narrative of a conquering God who promised he would come, he came in the fullness of time, and he is coming again. That song, that bird, when she, that bird that's perched on my heart and on my soul, when that sings that song, when it sings that hope over me, I can do anything. And so can you. Are we living in biblical gospel hope? Or are you still finding your hope in just what you can accomplish on your own? Are you still facing this world in fear and uncertainty because this world is tough and the evils of it are scary and we lose people that we love and we see atrocities and we see evil and we think of this world, what is good can come out of this world? If we don't have that hope, we just give up. But when we have biblical hope, then we say, oh, that same power who brought Jesus who raised him from the dead is now living in us that we can be the very instruments of bringing his kingdom truth, his restored garden to the earth right now. I love that when Jesus came and the miracles he performed, 
You know, I always often say this, but I say if Jesus could perform any miracles to show who he was. Like, his miracles wasn't just to be like, hey, look how powerful I am. Because if he wanted to, he could fly up and down in a dragon with fireworks in the sky saying, look how awesome I am. You know, if he wanted to, he could paint it with stars and moons and make buildings and be like, see, I'm cool. If he just wanted to show how powerful he was, he could have done anything like that. But he didn't do that. He chose miracles that restored creation the way it's supposed to be. He brought back sight to the blind. He brought back the people who couldn't walk, let them walk, and he even restored death into life. And what we now get to do is be the ones that say, no, no, the kingdom of God is restoration of what was right in the world, and we get to make what is wrong in this world right alongside Jesus. That's our calling. And we can only do that when we have biblical hope. Do you see yourself in the meta-narrative? Do you hear the history? It's hope perched in your soul. This Advent season, may you focus on that hope. Amen? Let's pray.